We're learning for the Fuash the Mahaya Saram Maksimha. So we have uh, we have a new week. And this week actually is a double header. So I don't know what we're gonna do. It's two parashiyot this week, Matot and Mas'ain. Actually, we finished the book. Well, we finished the fourth book this week, so we got one more to go. Can you imagine that? We learned already four books together. It's kind of amazing. The um the parashah's matot, if you have your machine. So the beginning of the parashah actually talks about the laws of uh, vows. Nedarim, neder. <clears throat> the Torah says that if a person makes a vow, so it's binding. And uh, the only way to get, get rid of the vow is he has to do what's called hatara. So certain vows can be absolved in front of three people. And you have to tell them, you know, that you want to absorb yourself. And they say, mutarim lachem, mutarim lachem, mutarim lachem. And they absorb, like we do in shul before the high holidays. And then you have another type of hatara that's done in front of a, a scholar. One rabbi can do that for you. And then there's another type of hatara that's done by the father. For example, a child makes a nedir. And there's another type of hatara that's made by the husband. For example, let's say the wife makes a nedir. The husband has the right to... Uh, absolve his wife from the Nedarim. So the Torah, in the beginning of Matot, talks about all the different cases of uh, a person making a Nedar, a girl making a Nedar, a married lady making a Nedar, and the different ways to uh, absolve. Now, it should be pointed out that um, the law of uh, Nedar uh, was given to the heads of the tribes. That's why the pasuk begins by Daber Moshe Hamatot. He gave this law over to the heads of the tribes. Now she says that he gave them, you know, kabod to teach it to them first. But don't think that he only taught it to them. This is part of the Torah, so we had to actually teach it to everybody. It's just that he gave them kabod to teach it to them first. That's why the parasha is called Matot. Matot means the heads of the tribes or tribes. So they got the first, let's say, uh, preview of the laws of the Darim. And the she says, for good reason, because they're the ones that can absolve the people from the Darim, because they're like the scholars. So therefore, they got the preview of it, but don't think that they're the only ones that got the law. The law was given ultimately to all, uh, all the people. Okay? And it says, uh, Now, this is the word that God has spoken. This is the word. Now, uh, Rashi learns a big chedush from these uh, words. Moshe Rabbeinu says, this is the word that God said. Now, when you say the word this, it means like you're very clear. You're pointing to something. This is the word. All the other prophets, when they prophesied, they said, so says Hashem. But Moshe prophesies by saying, this is what Hashem says. That just shows us that Moshe's prophecy was a much clearer prophecy. It was a much more uh, lucid prophecy that he received uh, with clarity more than more than the other prophets. No other prophet prophesizes using those words. This is the word of Hashem. Like uh, uh, Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy is unparalleled. And what is what does he say? So the law goes like this: Ishki Hashem. If a man makes a neder a vow, Hashem. Now, how do you make a vow? You say Hare Alai. It is on me to do such and such a thing. Uh, for example, uh, it is incumbent upon me to uh, to do this um, 
um, to do this uh, act. I will go visit, uh, you know, uh, so-and-so. He puts a vow on it. So now he has to fulfill that vow. Or he makes something forbidden on him. Uh, I'm not going to drink wine for 30 days. So that would be a vow. So you can make a vow on a positive. You can make a vow on a negative. But the Torah is going to teach us that you cannot make a vow on something that is forbidden. You can make something permissible forbidden, but you can't make something forbidden permissible, which was, I could say, I'm not going to drink wine. Okay. Don't think. But you can't say, I'm making a nidr, I'm going to eat a ham sandwich. You're not allowed to eat a ham sandwich. So therefore your vow has no, uh, has no holding. Uh, therefore the Torah teaches us in this pasuk, if a person makes a neder to God, or his Shabbat Shavuah, or he makes a swear, he's forbidding something. That's what she says. You can only make a neder permissible to make it forbidden, but not something forbidden to make it uh, permissible. Now this teaches us, you should not profane your word. That means if you said you're going to do something, you have to do it. This happens a lot where people, let's say, make vows at the Semper Torah. They, want, they donate money. And then uh, you send them a bill and they don't want to pay. Or they, they neglect it. So the Torah is saying when you're making a neder, the neder is to Hashem. So it's not, not, it's not that you're not keeping your word to yourself. Or you're not keeping your word to the synagogue. You're not keeping your word to God. When a person makes a vow, it's a vow to God. So therefore you have to keep your word. And do not defame your word, the Torah says. You have to keep your vow. Whatever comes out of your mouth, you have, you have to fulfill. And that's why the sin of the darim is very, very strict. Because we pray with our mouths. So if a person is going to make vows and not keep his word, so that means his mouth doesn't mean anything. So then when he prays, his prayers are not going to be accepted. That's why before the high holidays, we constantly make to clean ourselves from vows so our mouths will work when we come to pray on the high holidays. But otherwise, God says you have a malfunctioning mouth. Whatever you say, you don't keep anyway. So the boy should listen to your words in prayer. So that's why it says one has to be very, very, very careful of the, uh, of the mitzvah of the darim. So that's why it's probably better don't make the darim. That's why whenever you say something, without a vow, I don't want to. I don't want to hold myself. But sometimes there's laws that uh, people are bound by certain things. Therefore, one has to be very, very, very careful. If you come to our shul, for example, where we pray, we make katarim every Friday the whole year. We don't want to go into Shabbat with nidarim. So anybody needs a nidarim during the year, just come to Al-Minyan. And every week after al Shabbat on Fridays, we give out the papers of Atarah. And we have three uh, guys sitting there, and mutarim lachem, and we absolve everybody of the uh, of the vows. Because that's, that's how serious the sin is. The, the Arizal says you shouldn't even go into Shabbat that evening because you don't want to have that on your head. Okay, now we get to the first case. The isha Hashem. If you have a a lady, okay, you have a lady. And she makes a nidr. Again, when you make a nidr, it's to God. And she forbade something on herself. I don't know, she's not going to uh, drink wine or she's not going uh, to 
you know, uh, eat uh, apples, let's say. That's a good one. Uh, and she did it in her father's house. So she's a single girl. She's in her father's house. And she is the age of a ne'arah. Now, what is a ne'arah? You have to learn terminologies. There's three types of girls. There's ketana. There is bogeret. Oh, sorry, ketana, ne'ara, and bogeret. Ketana is a minor. Uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. Uh, the vow of a minor is worthless. So you don't even need absolving of such a, 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 a neder of a ketana. Bogeret girl that's 12 years old and six months. So she reached maturity already. Her vow belongs to her. The father has no power over the adult girl, the 12 and six months. We're talking about a girl between the ages of 12 and tw- twelve and six months, meaning 12 and 12 and a half. She's called a ne'ara. The ne'ara, the father has a right to absolve the vows of a ne'ara. So that's what the pasuk says. Mishama the father heard the ne'ed. Uh, she said, ah, dad, I'm not the ne'ed, I'm not drinking uh, uh, whatever it is, uh, apple juice anymore. Mishama isha Oh, and what was the father's reaction? He kept quiet. Now, by him keeping quiet, that means the neder is valid. The only way the neder can become uh, 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 nullified is if when the father hears it right away, he says, I don't accept, nullified. But if he keeps quiet, so then the pasuk says, However, means he rejected or he restrained her. On the day that he heard it. So he actually has one day to nullify. Doesn't have to be right away. Let's say he heard it on Monday. And Monday afternoon, he said, you know what? Nullify. It's the same day. So then since he nullified it, whatever she said, it does not have any uh, standing. And it says, and Hashem should forgive her. Now the question is, when we forgive her for what? Forgive her, forgive her for what? What did she do wrong? She just made an edit. It's not, it's not a sin to make an edit. She said, I'm not eating apples. Okay. The father heard it and said, I nullify it. Okay, so the father nullified it. So now she's allowed to eat apples. So what's, what, what does it mean when it says over here that God should forgive her? So the, um, uh, the Gemara over here learns an interesting case. Gemara says, what is this pasuk talking about? This actually is talking about a, a lady that's married. So a lady that's married, her husband is able to also nullify the vows. So let's do an interesting story. I think there's a great lesson over here. So she came along and said, the lady, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not drinking wine anymore. I made a neither no more wine. And the husband heard it. And he said, I nullify it. But the husband didn't tell the wife that he nullified it. So she still thinks that she has the neder on her, even though she doesn't. And what did she go do? She went and drank wine. Now she thinks she's making a sin because she still thinks she has the neder on her. But in truth, she's not making a sin because the husband 
nullified it. So here we're learning a lesson that if a person does something and they think they're doing a sin, it's a sin. Because in this lady's mind, she's rebelling against God. So therefore the Pasuk says she needs even though technically she didn't do anything. The husband nullified it. But in her brain, she intended to sin. And she ate the wine. She drank the wine. So I'll give you the example of the Gemara says. Let's say a person goes to a restaurant and he orders, uh, or he's on the, the, the restaurant, not a good example because you won't have that on a restaurant, but you could have it on a plane. Let's say a guy's on a plane and the, the, the stewardess comes to him and says, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Cohen, uh, would you like a kosher meal? Nah, I'm not interested in a kosher meal. I'll eat the regular ham uh, sandwich, whatever you're giving everybody else. So, okay. And uh, the stewardess ends up bringing him a glad kosher meal. And he eats it. And he thinks he's eating ham the whole time. The Torah comes and says he needs kapara because this guy thinks he's making a sin. Even though he really didn't. He ate glad kosher meal. But since he ordered the ham and he thought that he was eating the ham, even though it worked out to his favor at the end, that he's uh, uh, eating kasher, kasher islahla. So that means God also punishes a person if he commits an action with bad, with bad intention. So you see, that that's the case of the neder that the pasuk uh, is talking about. Now, let's go one more step. Uh, let's say this lady over here we're talking about what she's married but now what type of married is she so the case over here we're talking about an arusa now what's an arusa she's engaged so the question over here is an engaged girl who has rights to break her nether well technically she didn't leave her father's house completely because she's only engaged. So she's still under the jurisdiction of her father. Now she didn't enter the husband's jurisdiction completely because he didn't consummate the marriage yet. So she's, she's, she's in what we call limbo. Limbo means she's in two places. She's here and there, or you could say she's neither here or there. She's not totally in the husband's domain. She's not totally in the father's domain. So who would you think has the right to break a neder of a betrothed girl? 12 years old, she's betrothed, she's na'ara who breaks the neder? So the Torah says that her father and her husband break the nedarim jointly. So you see how it goes on? That means if the father did it alone without the husband, or let's say the husband did it alone without the father, it's not nullified. Um, you need both of them in order to absolve her from the vow. So we have, we have interesting cases here. So sometimes we have the father. Let's see if anybody understood what we talked about here tonight. Give me a case where the father alone can break the vow of his daughter. What's the case of a father breaking the vow? That's it. My wife answered it. Okay. It can come from anywhere, the answer. Exactly. If, if the girl is 12 years old, the father has a right to, vow, to break the vow. Now, what if, let's say, a six-year-old makes a vow? 
What's the law on that? Doesn't right. count. Not so, a vow. Not a vow. Right. Fine. I'm going for 12 year old and six months and up makes a vow. Who breaks that vow? She has her own. Okay. Her own. She has to break it herself. She has to go to the rabbis. Very good. Talk about a married lady. A married lady, completely married. Who breaks the vow? A husband. Very good. A husband. Now, if you have a na'ara, a 12-year-old girl that's engaged, who breaks the vow? Father and husband. There you oh. go. Learned something tonight about that's exactly. It's a, it's a refresher course for the laws of uh, Nidarim. So that's the, the basic lesson. And the real takeaway is that you have to keep your word. If you commit to something, that's like a vow. Therefore, uh, Torah takes a person's word very, very seriously. A yes has to be a yes, and a no has to be a no, and a maybe has to be a maybe, and that's the uh, that's the law. All right, we did good abotai. We learned these classes for the Poshimahayasara Basimha. And tomorrow night uh, we'll learn a little more and then we get to the next subject. Okay. So she should have before Asherima. Amen. So we're in Parashat Matot, and we're in the uh, laws of Nedarim, the laws of vows. So some of the laws that apply to tonight's subject, we're going to discuss the, a widow that makes a vow. So we learned last night that certain girls that make vows are under the jurisdiction of their father, and therefore the father could nullify the vows of, let's say, a 12-year-old girl. And then we said, if a girl gets married, so then she's under the jurisdiction of her husband, and therefore he can nullify certain vows like we're going to learn tonight. We said that a girl that's engaged, so she's in a double jurisdiction. She's in the jurisdiction of her father, because she didn't leave the house totally yet, but she's still in the, and she's entered the jurisdiction of her new husband, so therefore they jointly nullify vows. Uh, but what about a widow? So a widow basically left her father's house to get married. So she left her father's house and entered her husband's house. Now her husband's not here anymore, so she's not in her husband's house anymore. So then she becomes independent and she's in her own domain. So therefore the vows of an almana, she controls them. And therefore there's nobody to nullify them except herself if she goes to the rabbis. So we're reading Pasuk 10. For that matter, a divorcee. A divorcee, she's not in her husband's jurisdiction anymore. She left her father's house when she got married. Therefore, she's also independent. So But if a lady, let's say, who's married, made nedarim, uh, and the husband heard the neder, uh, uh, and he kept quiet. He didn't restrain her. So then, so then the darim uh, then become valid. They become holding. Now, how long does the husband have to nullify his wife's neder? So till the end of the day. So let's say she makes a neder at two p.m. He has until let's say sunset, and then after if he doesn't say anything until sunset. He doesn't protest and nullify it, then the ready the is is uh, uh, binding. Next person comes along and says that um, 
If the husband nullifies it on the day that he hears it, whatever came out of our mouth will be sudden. Lo yakum means the neder uh, does not stand. Of course, the husband uh, invalidated it. And God will uh, forgive her. Now, call neder v'choshvat isal la'anot now the Torah over here puts a great limitation on what type of vows a husband is allowed to nullify if his wife makes it. It's called vows of inui nefesh. A, a type of vow that causes personal affliction. Now what do you mean personal affliction? So the Gemara learns based on that that it's referring to personal affliction uh, to the husband, which it, it affects it affects him. Now, how would it uh, how would it affects him? Let's say she makes a neder that um, I don't know uh, she's not going to wear makeup anymore. Well, that affects the husband sometimes. So therefore, uh, he comes along and says, "What do you mean you're not going to wear makeup anymore?" So therefore, he, he invalidates that. Because that affects him. Which he's not going to make dinner anymore. In some cases, that's a berachah. But then let's say a guy says, uh, you know, he wants to have dinner, let's say. So therefore, he can nullify any neder that affects him. Then already, um, uh, you know, to, to, to nullify. That's called the anot nafish. It's causing um, vows that uh, the husband may nullify, which affect the personal relationship between himself and his wife. So now uh, the Pasuk says, now this is an interesting case. Now let's say the per, the the father the the, the the father, the husband heard his wife make a neder. Fine. And he says, Okay, I accept the neder. Once he accepts the neder, he cannot nullify it, even though it's before sunset. That means there's no changing his mind. Could if you he, explain to me how comes the Ask a question. What's the question? Well, I'm in the room. Pauline doesn't by that side. Oh, not a question. For somebody else. Okay. So now you have over here, uh, the case is that once he accepts the vow, he cannot go back and nullify the vow. That means he cannot say, oh, she, he hears her make some sort of vow, and he says, I don't mind it, I accept. Then at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, he says, you know what, I changed my mind. No, too late. Once he accepts it, there's no there's no going back. Now the pasuk says, and if he does nullify them after he heard it and accepted them, he takes her sin. What does that mean? I mean, let's say, he accepted the vow, and then he nullified it, and he tells his wife, ah, don't worry, I nullified it, but he doesn't tell her that he accepted it already, so she thinks the vow was nullified, so she comes in, uh, she does what she thought was forbidden to her, because she thinks that the vow was nullified, the husband misled her, and therefore he gets the sin, because he caused her to stumble. She's only breaking her vow because she doesn't think the vow was on her, because her husband said, you're okay, I nullified it. But he, he doesn't say that he nullified after he accepted it. And therefore, his nullification is invalid. 
And therefore, the Torah comes along and says that he gets punished. And he will have to carry uh, the, uh, the sin. And what do you learn from here? Now she says you learn a great lesson from this. That anybody that causes an obstacle to his friend to sin, he enters him instead for all the punishments. So that's a you know, the simple case. Person invites somebody over to the house to eat and you serve him not kosher. So the person, the host, is going to get the punishment for all the not kosher food that was served for everybody, for every piece of food or drink that went into their mouths because you brought a stumbling block in front of them. person invites you to the house, you assume he's feeding you kosher. You brought a stumbling block and served them things that were not, uh, you know, kashir. You put a stumbling block, so the host will get the punishment for everybody. Of course, that doesn't mean if the person knows that he can eat it. Because if you know that it's not kosher, you can't eat it. You can't say, well, I'll eat it and he'll get the punishment. No. We're talking about over here where you stumble them, where they're blind. They don't know that they're making any soup. So that's Whenever you're dealing with people in the public, you have to be so be extra, extra strict in your, you know, kashrut uh, or whatever it may be. You don't want people to uh, stumble and make a sin on your account. It's enough that we have to pay for our own sins, let alone that we have to be billed for, um, you know, the sins. sins. But that's, that's a practical lesson we learned from there. All right, now we get to the next subject. So the first subject was the laws of Nidarin. We're done with that. Now we get to subject number two. Let's review this outside for a minute. So if you remember, uh, let's say two weeks ago, I don't know if we got to it, but after Bil'am uh, wasn't able to curse the Jewish people, he advised Balak to get the Jewish people to sin in immorality, in promiscuity. And the girls of Midian came, this Goyot, and they caused a big stumbling block for the people. And a lot of people went after the Zenut, the, 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 the immorality. And it was a terrible thing. And a lot of people died as a result of it on our side. And it was a great, uh, great tragedy. So now God says it's time to take revenge from Midian. So God wants us to go to Midian and revenge the uh, people that caused us to sin. And that'll be Moshe Rabbeinu's last uh, instruction before he dies. One last uh, item God tells Moshe, and we read the Pasuk, Nekom nikmat b'nei Yisrael midyanim. Go take the revenge from the Midianim people. Ahar ramech, and then uh, you will die. Um, now, uh, why not take revenge from the Moavi people? I mean, the Moavi people were Balak's people. So they weren't so good. So why not revenge them? As she says, because they only entered the fight against the Jewish people because they were afraid. Because uh, they were frightened from Israel because Benesa was, you know, pillaging them and robbing from them or whatever, fighting them and terrorizing them. So therefore, okay, you, you could understand why Moab was angry at Benesa. They were acting in self-defense. But Midian had no, no claim against the Jews. They just came against us for no reason. So that's why Midian is worse. Okay, if you're if you're defending yourself against the Jewish people that are attacking, okay, we can understand it. But there's no reason for Midian to involve themselves in a fight that doesn't even affect them. So they were fighting, you know, the Jewish people out of pure hatred. 
So therefore, God said, go to the Midianim and now take a uh, take a revenge. And another explanation that she says, why do you think God did not want us to go destroy the nation of Moab at this point? Anybody know who came out of Moab? Ruth. Very good. That's exactly why God said, even though they're guilty for, you know, uh, 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 you know, conspiring against us, but since I have a great tzaddikah called Ruth uh, and Naama, those two tzaddikahs that are going to come out of them, but specifically Ruth, so God said, I'm going to put a, uh, a suspension on the attack until a later date. So you see the Goim, how lucky they were that they had this root in their uh, possession. She actually ended up saving them from, from destruction. Now the pasuk comes along and says, uh, So Moshe speaks to the people and he tells them, um, Take men from amongst yourselves to the army. They will fight against Midian. To fight and take the revenge of, um, of Hashem. Now that she says, Anashim, of course, Tzadikim. Whenever uh, we have um, uh, people that go out to war, it has to be the choice men. And it says to take choice, choice, meaning choice. The best, meaning Tzadikim. I mean, religiously, uh, uh, choice. Now, why does it say the revenge of God? This is the revenge of Israel. And as she says, because anybody that comes against Israel is coming against God. Because we're, we're the children of God. So therefore, you come against a child, it means you're going against their parents. So therefore, we say this is a revenge uh, for God. And uh, the Pasuk says, each tribe sent a thousand, including the tribe of Levi. So altogether, they sent... Oh. 12,000 uh, to go out uh, to the war. And we'll read one more pasuk. Our members are getting a little restless. They sent 1,000 per tribe. Altogether, 12,000 um, are going to uh, fight. Tomorrow night, we have a very exciting uh, uh, moment where we're going to learn about the actual war that B'nai went with the 12,000 men and they're going to fight Midian. I'm not going to tell you who's going to win. You have to wait till tomorrow night. We learned this shiurim for the fuat shirema chaya sarabat subha. We have parashat batot. And we're learning the fuat shirema chaya sarabat subha. And we have over here an uh, interesting story. So we're in, we're in the middle of a war now. And Israel are going to go take revenge against Midian. This is a revenge that starts because of what they did to us a few parashiyot ago when they caused us to sin. And God told Moshe to go and get volunteers. And he went and he got a thousand people per tribe. So that's 12,000 people. And the Pasuk says, uh, Moshe, Moshe sent them 1,000 per tribe So 
It's actually 12,000 plus one. 12,001 people. And who's the extra person? Pinehas. And we know who he is. Pinehas ben Azab ben Arona Kohen. He's the one that killed Zimri when Zimri, the tribal leader, was committing the act of immorality. So we read as Zom Perasha. So that she comes along and says, from the fact that the Pasuk says that he sent them, Otam and Pinehas, so there's a connection between them, the 12,000 and Pinehas, to tell us that Pinehas was equal to the 12,000. That means in stature, you put the 12,000 soldiers on one side of the scale, and you put Pinehas on the other side, he's equal to them. Otam ve'et Pinehas. And then that she's question is, why send Pinehas at all? Why Abinu send Pinehas to this to this war? I mean, he's not a general. He's not, a, not known to be a fighter. So why is he commissioned to go to the war? So that she will offer us three reasons. Reason number one, we have a rule that if somebody starts a mitzvah, he has to finish it. If you start something, you have to finish it, especially when it comes to a mitzvah. <laughs> Pinehas started the mitzvah of killing Zimri and Kozbi. Kozbi was the uh, lady from Midian. So since he started the revenge, so let him finish it and go to Midian and you know, kill the rest of the uh, of the Midianim. So that's the first answer. The rule, Hamatil be mitzvah, Omrim lo gemor. One that starts the mitzvah, it's very easy to start things, but it's hard to follow through. People are gung ho in the beginning, and then they they fall out. They become uh, cooled off, and they become uh, you know loses its excitement and they become lazy and. Uh, the Torah is teaching us that the Yisra also doesn't want people to finish what they start. So therefore, Pinehas started the mitzvah. We tell him, you know what? Go and finish it. Second reason. Now the second reason you're going to find amazing. We learned about the Midyanim in a different perasha. Way back in the book of Bereshit, when the brothers sold Yosef, remember they sold him to, uh, to, to Egypt. Now, if you remember, they didn't sell him directly to Egypt. They sold him to the Midianim. And the Midianim sold them subsequently to Egypt. So the Midianim are responsible, at least they were the agent, that sold Yosef down to Mitzrayim. And Pinehas's maternal grandfather came from Yosef. So on his mother's side, Pinehas comes from Yosef. So this was revenge that Pinehas is taking for what they did to his uh, ancestor, Yosef. They sold Yosef to Midianim, and therefore Pinehas is going to settle the score. Many years later, he's going to come along and uh, take revenge. So that's the second reason why Pinehas went to take revenge for what they did to his grandfather. Third reason, there's a law that says that when you go out to war, the Kohen must go out as well. There was two types of Kohanim. There's a Kohen Gadol, that's the Kohen that serves in the Beit HaMikdash. And then there's the Kohen that's called Mashuach Milhama. He's anointed in order to take the soldiers out to war. So Pinehas 
was that type of Kohen. He was the uh, chaplain of the army. And therefore, that's why he was chosen, to be the Kohen that, again, delivers the people out to war. So now we have three reasons why uh, Pinehas was taken. Furthermore, it says, with them they brought Kleha Kodesh. They brought to the war sacred vessels. Now, what are the sacred vessels? Now, she says they actually brought the ark. So when the Jewish people went out to war, they traveled with the ark. That was like for Beracha. And the seats. The seats was the headband that the Kohen wore around his forehead and it had the holy name of Hashem. Now, she tells us that this seats, this headband that they brought with them came in handy. Why? Bil'am happened to be in Midian at that time. Binyam, actually, Bil'am went to get paid for what he did for Balak, so he went to get uh, you know, compensated. So he was there. And Bil'am was a magician, so he had a lot of magic stuff. So when Pinehas came with the soldiers, of course, Bil'am was a target, and all the kings of Midian were targets as well. So Bil'am, using his witchcraft abilities, was able to cause them to fly. So they're, they're hovering. Him and the five kings of Midian were like drones. So therefore, to escape the uh, attack of uh, Pinehas and the soldiers. So how do you bring them down to the ground? So it says that Pinehas took the seats out and showed it to them. When the name of God was revealed, they fell to the ground. And when they fell to the ground, Pinehas had a sword on the ground. So they fell right on the sword and they died. And Bil'am died as well. It says they died upon their, uh, you know, from the air, they fell upon the slain ones, which means there was people just falling from the ground and I don't, even know, I don't even know if they had to fall on a sword, to be honest with you. They just fell to the ground. They just died from, uh, you know, from, uh, from, from the impact, exactly. So that's a little uh, magic for tonight. Could you imagine this war? You got there and you have a bunch of these criminals flying around, hovering over the water, hovering over the land. And uh, Pinehas came along and said, no problem. You showed them the seats and... They came crashing down. And they also brought the trumpets. That's what they used to bring during war. They blow the trumpets. Now it says, uh, So they massed against Midian. Like God commanded. And they killed all the, all the males. Hi. I'm listening to Rabbi Mansour. What's going on with you? <laughs> um, you have to mute yourself. She had a scan a long time ago, and the doctor didn't tell her. Oh, boy. Like she just found out. You have to put yourself on mute. Go for the MRI. I'll tell you what. Jessica, she's going on Saturday. Okay. Okay. You're, you're not on mute. Hang up. Hang up. I'm sorry. I didn't mute. Sorry. So the Pasuk says that they killed all the males. Not only that, but Malchem Midian Haregu al 
and they killed the uh, kings of Midian. Now we're going to tell you the names of the kings of Midian. Evi, or Evi, Rekem, Sur, Sur is actually Balak, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. Now, the Torah comes and tells us these five kings were all equally in the same conspiracy against the Jewish people. And therefore, they all died simultaneously. That means it says, Bil'am, that she says, went there to get paid the money that uh, they promised them. And uh, when, when he got there, um, there was an amazing thing because it says, so what happened was when uh, when uh, Bil'am went to Midian in order to get the reward to take payment for the 24,000 people that he was able to, to bring down in his advice. So if we wanted to get compensated, so he went towards the direction of Israel, and he gave Israel bad advice. Amar lahem, im kishiyitem shishim ribo. If when you were six hundred thousand, lo yicholtem lahem, you couldn't overtake them, which means you fell during this last plague over here, and you were six hundred thousand. You're going to come and fight with 12,000. How are you going to beat them? You're only 12,000 people. Uh, so it says that. Uh, well, let me just see how that she's learning over here. One second. I want to read that she again. I'm reading. We know it's five. We're not a council. Why does the person have to say five? Yes, they were all part of the same conspiracy. And that's where they all got punished equally. They all died. And then that she says, Bil'am halach sham. Bil'am went to Midyam. Litol sakhar esrim varba'a elif. To take payment for the 24,000 shepil mi Yisrael. Okay. And then what? Ba'atzator, through his advice. V'yatsam in Midyam. Now he left Midyam. Lekra Yisrael. In the direction of Yisrael. Fine. Now he's returning home. And what happened? The Pasuk says, He gave Israel bad advice. Ah, he gave Israel bad advice. And what was the advice that he told them? If when there was 600,000 of you, you weren't able to overcome them. Now, you're coming to fight with only 12,000. But Bilam basically was arguing that uh, there is solidarity in numbers. When Minyan faced the entire Israelite camp with all 600,000s, they were not able to overcome the 
temptations. And now it stands to reason that if Israel faced Midian with a legion of only 12,000, that surely they're going to fall to sin. If we fell to sin to Midian when we were our entire nation, so certainly we're going to fall to sin if we're only 12,000. That was Bilam's advice. So it says, what happened? They paid him in full for the advice. And did not deprive him. Wow, so B'nai Israel paid him for the for the advice. And uh, they let him go, but not before they killed him. Now they took the girls of Midian into captivity and the children, and the animals and the flock and all the uh, uh, wealth they took as spoils. And all the cities, and all the buildings, they burnt the whole thing down. They took all the spoils, they plundered everything, uh, and all the um, assets. And now the Pasuk says, we read it before, I'm reading what it said before. And they killed Bil'am bin Be'or with a sword. Now the Torah comes along and says why they killed them with a sword. Because our strength as Jews is not with the sword. Our strength is with our mouth. We pray. The Guim, their strength is with the sword. Bil'am tried to use our strength against us. He came with his mouth. So we came with his strength, the sword. He tried to use our strength, the mouth, against us. So we use his strength against him. That's the way uh, that she says. And anyway, it says um, the Jewish people took all the, the spoils and uh, they didn't steal anything, uh, only, only what they were allowed to take. Nobody took from anybody else. Fine. They didn't take things that were not part of the uh, spoils. So they were coming to say that they were um, honest in their uh, in their taking. That's what it says over here in the pasuk. Uh, so that she says, They were decent and righteous. Right? They didn't take anything that was, uh, you know, not permissible. Last pasuk. They came back and they brought back all the spoils and all the uh, captives. Uh, now we're going to see that um, when they brought everybody back, Moshe is going to be very upset because they brought back the girls. The whole purpose of the war was to kill them. And you brought them back, now they're going to be a stumbling block again. So tomorrow night we're going to learn how when Moshe Rabbeinu saw the uh, captives, or captivettes, when they came back, uh, he's going to get very upset. We'll see exactly uh, what, he, uh, what he does with that. Okay, there you go. Nice, nice, uh, nicely moved. Stop over here. Hello. And uh, we're at an unbelievable point over here.
We're in Parashat Matot. They went to war last night, the major war, and they went against Midian. 12,000 men, Pinehas is the, uh, is the leader of the, uh, of the troops. They go and they actually end up uh, killing all the male. They come back, they take spoils, and uh, they took uh, captives. And now the Pasuk will begin in Shilishi. So it's Pasuk Yudimal. So the leaders, Moshe and Azad the Kohen, and the uh, the presidents of the tribes, they come out in order to um, greet the young men of Israel. Um, so they went out. So what happens? So Moshe Rabbeinu gets angry. He gets angry at the officers. Now, why did he get angry over here? So the Pasuk says, on the leaders, as she says, because always when there's a problem in the generation, it's the leaders. That's why he got angry at the leaders. And it says, Did you leave the uh, the females alive. Now, of course, Moshe Rabbeinu can't believe it because the whole reason why they went to war is because of the avon, the sin that they made with the girls of Midian. Now you brought the girls back to the camp. That's the that's the whole problem. They were the ones in the time of Bil'am, Limson Ma'al Bahashem, was just the trespassing regarding the sin of Pippon. But the and then the plague came. So therefore, uh, what uh, what did you do by bringing them oh, uh, back? So that she comes along and said, "Midbal Bilam, Amatahem Bilam said to the Midianim, Afilu atem mechnisim, even if you're." All the, all the multitudes of the will not be. You have to mute your phone. And the Egyptians, the Egyptians had six hundred uh, uh, chariots. So he gave them an advice, and what was the advice that Bilam gave uh, the Midianim? You're not going to beat them militarily. You have to remember that. God of the Jews hates promiscuity. And therefore, he said, all you got to do is get them to commit sins of immorality and promiscuity and immodesty, and they'll get angry at them. And what you won't be able to accomplish during a physical war, you'll be able to get them during, a, uh, during Zima. That was Bil'am's whole plan. So now the Pasuk says, This is Moshe talking kill all the, the males uh, and children. And any literally any lady, any woman who knows a man, it sounds like who was with a man, uh, she should get killed as well. So that she says doesn't mean that. It means any woman who is fit to have relations even though she did not have 
relations. That means she's old enough to have relations. Now, how are we going to know who's worthy or not? So that she says, He took the seats, the headband of the Kohen, and it says, he let the ladies walk past it. And any lady that was fit to have relations, her face would turn yellow. That's it, COVID. Then they would know right away that um, uh, that they have, uh, you know, uh, that she was fit, and therefore they would kill her. Now the pasuk says harogu, so it says it twice. It says ve'ata hedgu kol zachar batam bechol isha yudat ish to meshkav zachar harogu. So that she says harogu lama chazar ba'amar. Why did it repeat the word kill a second time? Lapsika anyan the vreda bishmael. Sheim ani kore hedgu kol zachar betaf. If it just would have said kill all the male, much the children bechol isha yudat ish. And any woman who knows a man, and all the young children among the women. So, um, uh, because you, you might have made a mistake that you should have kept them alive. Because some of, some of the people you killed and some of the people you kept alive. So, we wouldn't know where to put these ladies with who knew who had relations, or were old enough to have relations, so the pasuk had to put harogu again, because the next pasuk says, and all the young girls who are not old enough to have relations, so those you have to keep alive. So if I didn't have this harogu with the last pasuk, I would have spread the whole thing that, I would have thought all of these people he keep alive. That's what I put Harogu again to come and uh, divide between uh, the ladies. So now it says, and he tells the uh, the people uh, to go outside the camp for seven days. Anybody that killed anybody during the war, because they're Tamer, anybody that touched the corpse. Should have to purify themselves with the paraduma on the third and the seventh day. You and your captive. So that she says over here, where they killed uh, with something that can receive impurity. Uh, for example, let's say some metal. When the instrument touches the dead body and you're holding the instrument, so that transmits impurity to the person. With the connection, with the uh, direct connection with the corpse. It's if you're touching the dead body itself. Or let's say, what if you kill them with, it, with an arrow where you have no really contact? So that she says, no. That's what the Pasuk says. Makish That's talking about nogeya and That's so long there was an attachment that uh, not that he shot an arrow that would not make the person tamer, but he killed him with let's say a knife or a sword, and he although he didn't touch the body, but the sword touched the body, so therefore it, it's a conduit to tumah. So there has to be a haniga uh, via a weapon which connects him to the victim. 
How do you become purified? The man he died with the waters of sprinkling. Just like the regular laws of corpse law, which we learned earlier. Um, the only question over here is, why did they have to sprinkle themselves? The Midianim were goyim. The goyim are not mekabel uh, tumah. So what's, what's, the, what's the issue of it? So that she says, even according to the opinion that says, the graves of the non-Jews, they're not going to metame in a roofed area. However, um, they are metame They are metame in physical uh, carrying or touching. Uh, the only thing that goyim are different than the Jews is they don't metame in a tent. Let's say you're in the same room as a dead goy, that will not be become tamer. Whereas a Jew, tumat ohel is mekabel tumah. Now, why does it say that they have to be sprinkled on the third and the seventh day? You and your captives, atim uspichim. What are the captives? The captives are goyim. What do they have to be? Uh, so that she says, lo shaguim mekabelim tumah. Not because the non-Jewish people receive tumah uspichim azan. They differ. They need sprinkling. Ela ma atim bere berit. Right. All it's saying is that if they convert, so if they end up converting, so then the law is once a non-Jew converts, they need hazaah, because they're going from uh, goy to Jew, so the law is they need to sprinkle themselves on day three and seven. So it wasn't saying that the captives need to, it's saying if the captives will convert, they're going to need uh, a sprinkling. When they come into the covenant and subsequently become impure, so then they have the laws of a of a Jew. And now all the vessels and all the uh, uh, garments needed to be sprinkled uh, as well. Now, Azar gets up now and tells all the uh, soldiers, the army that came back from the battle, this is the law of the Torah. And he starts to give them the laws now, a very, very important law of Haga'alat Kelim. So you know the law, if you have a pot, and the pot has, let's say, inside of it uh, something that's not kosher, and the walls, so the law is you have to uh, kosher it. How do you kosher the pot? So the Torah is going to teach it to us. Now, strangely enough, the law of Haga'alat is being taught over here by El Hazara Kohen. Where was Moshe? Whenever there's a new law to be taught, it's Moshe that teaches the law. Here it's brought, being taught by El-Azar. Where was Moshe? So that she says, because he got angry, remember we just learned Moshe got angry at the people when they brought back the girls? We have a law. He got angry, he forgot. He forgot the law. So you see over here that anger causes a person to forget his, uh, forget his learning. Now, Rav Chaim Shmulavis explains, it's not a punishment. Anger... Is, it's a reality. And he gives the famous mashal, you know, if a lady's uh, uh, cooking dinner, she's cooking dinner for a family or she's cooking for, you know, orphans or doing a mitzvah, and by mistake, uh, she touches the pot. Her hand's going to get burnt. Even though she's doing a mitzvah, it's a reality. Reality is that the, the fire burns. We don't say, well, she's doing a mitzvah, therefore it's not going to burn her. No, fire burns good people and bad people. The same thing when it comes to anger. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu's anger might have been justified, it wasn't angry. He wasn't getting angry at something, uh, you know, uh, frivolous. He was getting angry. Why are you bringing these girls back into the camp? These are the ones that caused us the sin. This is a very justified anger, but he still got punished. 
Not because it's a punishment. It's a reality. Anger causes people to forget. That's why the Mishnah Perkeabot says, Velo hakapdan melamed. A kapdan, an angry man, should not be a teacher. Why? Because to be a teacher, you have to have a good memory. You have to remember the curriculum. And if you're going to be angry, so you're going to just forget all the uh, stuff that you're supposed to teach, you're going to end up making uh, mistakes. So now the Torah says, Zotokat Torah, as you see, this is the law of the Torah, regarding the gold, and the silver, and the iron, I'm sorry, the copper, Barzel is iron, Beta Bedil, Bedil is the lead, Beta Ofarit, and that is, I'm sorry, Bedil is tin, and Ofarit is lead. Uh, so, what do you do with all these metallic uh, uh, items? Call Dabar Ashir Ba'esh, if you used it on the fire, and that's how the uh, non kosher went into the walls, Ta'aviru Ba'esh. The way to get it in is through fire, the way to get it out is through fire. You fight fire with fire. So, therefore, uh, the Torah comes along and teaches us the laws of purging uh, pots. And therefore, we were not allowed to use their pots until we uh, purified them, not only from the tum'ah of the, of, the, of the corpse, but we had to purify them from the absorption, uh, from the prohibited foods that the, uh, the guim had. And therefore, um, the Torah teaches us also that before they were able to purify it, you have to get the rust off. Because the, for the fire to go in and to pull the uh, absorption out, it cannot be rusty, as she says. Uh, very good. Uh, like anything that was used, let's say, through cooking, that's the rule. The purging is done in the manner it is used. Let's say you used it by cooking, so you purge it with hot water. If you roasted it, then you get it out. Like a spit or an askel as a grill. So then you do it with fire. So therefore, this is the law of koshering pots. Now besides that, it says, and you also need to sprinkle it with the waters. Now, uh, we have a very, very um, famous law that we just learned over here. Here it's saying that you have to take the vessel and you have to dip it in water. Now, what is this water over here? What is this water that we're talking about? So from here we learn that in order to kosher it as well, it needs to be dipped in a mikveh. And so here's where we learn the law of dipping vessels in a mikveh. Right. In order to cleanse the kelim uh, from the prohibition, the Torah requires metal vessels to be uh, to be dipped in a mikveh. And that's why till today we have the laws of tevilat kelim. So we learn from this week's parasha. So there's two things: you have to purge it from the absorption, and you have to dip it in the uh, the regular kelim mikveh. Uh, last but not least, whatever doesn't come into the fire, uh, let's say cups and uh, different things like that that are used in cold, and they didn't swallow anything, just have to dip it in the mikveh,
So the only metal vessels you need to deal with this absorption business, but regular glass dishes that are used for cold, you don't have to kosher them if you bought them from the Guim, but you still have to dip them in the uh, mikveh. All right? So we have uh, some lessons that we learned tonight. We learned the laws of Hagalat Kelim, the laws of Tamilat Kelim, the dangers of, uh, of anger, and uh, the power of the seats. And the seats was able to figure out which ladies are suitable for relations and which are not. All right. I, have one, I have one question, everybody. A okay. Kohen, is, a Kohen, is he allowed to go into the cemetery that's of a goy, of a goy less than four amot, since there's no tumah? Correct, he's allowed. He's allowed. Very interesting. Just a touch or handle the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the body of the goy. But if it's just over his body, a tent or a roof, no problem. Tomato oil does not apply. Gotcha. All Thank right. You. Sorry about that. So we're, we're learning for the And uh, so if you're following inside with us, it's Perik Lamit Aleph and it's Pasuk Chafeh 3125. Now let's just review where we ended up last night. So we finished the war. After the war was over, uh, God got up and gave the laws of koshering vessels from absorption through fire and through uh, different ways. And uh, he also taught us that you got to dip the kelim in the mikveh. From there, we learned the laws of tevilat kelim. And uh, now, very, very technical perasha now. We're going to get to tonight. Uh, we'll try to explain it just on the basic level what took place over here. I'm sure it deserves, you know, greater uh, greater analysis, but at least let's get the words and see on a simple level what happened. Okay, that's the easy part. So now, Moshe Rabbeinu says to count the um, the uh, the spoils. <clears throat> because if you remember, they took animals, which is called Malkawah. And Shivi is the the people, the actual captives. <clears throat> now they're going to count up the spoils. Now, what are you going to do once you count the spoils up? Listen, there's a formula here. And you'll divide it mamash in half. 50% goes to the guys who went out to war. Those are the 12,000. And the other half is divided by all the Jews that stayed back home. After most of the Jews did not go fight this war. But they will divide the spoils equally between the Soldiers, the warriors, and the people that stayed back home. So that's 50-50. We all know what the word meches means. Meches is a, a tax. But this is a good tax because it's not going to Uncle Sam. It's going to Hashem, going to God. So the half that the warriors got, echad nefesh mechamesh meot. So they have to give one five hundredth 
of every item of the of the uh, of the animals of the donkeys of the men of the sheep so that's a one five hundredth umemachasitam tikahu venatata leelazara kohen terumat hashem and uh, they will give that uh, to Azara uh, Kohen. That's the Tirumat uh, So that is the five, one five hundredth. Okay? And from the half that Bnei Israel got, because they also got half, those are the non-warriors, they take one fiftieth. One second. Mina Adam, Mina Bakar, Mina Hamorim, same items. Mina Sum, Mina Tata Otam Lalviim. And that goes to the Lviim. So again, let's just review the formula that's taking place over here. They have all the items. First of all, you make a clean split. 50% goes to the warriors, 50% goes to the people. And then the warriors take one five hundredth of their items and they give it to El Azad. And then the people take one fiftieth of their items and they give it to the Leviim. So they, so they did it. Now, the Torah now is going to give you the math. Because it's not so easy to figure out one five hundredth of something. So the, the Torah here is going to give you exactly the number. The spoils. That the army collected. So how much is that? 675,000. That's how much Kalim worth of Malkawah uh, of uh, of sheep, six hundred and so now you have to split six hundred and seventy-five thousand in half. Anybody have a calculator? Six hundred and seventy-five thousand divided by two. And if you if, if you could just remember that number. How much? That's exactly the number. Three three seven five hundred. Keep that number on. The, if somebody has a paper in front of them, keep that number three three seven five hundred. Ubakad, how much cattle was there? Shenaim v'shivim aleph, seventy-two thousand. So from the seventy-two thousand, you have to split that in half. So what's half of seventy-two thousand? Thirty-six. The hamori, echad v'shishim aleph, and hamorim is sixty-one thousand. You have to split that in half, so it's what, 29, 29, 3,500? 3,500. The people of the ladies that did not, uh, were not suitable for relations, call nefesh shenayim ushloshim alif. That's shenayim ushloshim alif is 32,000. So now you don't need a calculator, Abotai. I was just kidding. Because the Torah is going to give you the exact half mark. But the half on the how much son? 
So we're dividing 675,000. So it says, So it's 170, sorry. By 337,500. Exactly. That's exactly what we said. So the Torah saying that number. It's amazing that the Torah gives you these calculations. The son, which we said was 72,000. So we're going to divide 72,000. So it's going to be 75,600. Right. 72,000. So the half of 72,000 is 36,500? No. No. I'm sorry. One second. I'm going back. The tzon we said was oh here. My, my mistake. Uh now we're doing the, the 500th. The next person was giving you the 500th. So what's one 500th of that? One 500th of six uh, of, of half that number of three. What's one 500 of 337,500? I wouldn't even have What is it? 675. And that's what the Torah says. Very good. 675. So you see, what, just just so you get the, the, the botai, we don't pay attention to these people because they're technical stuff, but we're ready, we're in it. Basically, what the Torah is doing over here is it's giving you the number that they collected in the war, total number. Then they're giving you 50% between the warriors and everybody else. And then on the warrior side, they're giving you the one five hundred. So the Torah is giving you the number. It's giving you the total number. It's giving you the half and it's giving you the one five hundredth. So you're going to get three numbers in the Torah. That, that's, again, if we're not going to spend time just to talk about this, obviously the Torah felt it was important. Now, we have Bakar. Now when it comes to Bakar, we're splitting it in half. So that's the easy one. 72,000 split in half. With 72,000 in half, Shisha Ustoshim Elif. Very good, 36,000. Now we're give the one five hundred. Umichsam Hashem and the tax to Hashem, Shnaim B'Shiv'im, 72. So 72 would be, no? No. Go slow. 36,000. One five hundred of 36,000. No. One five hundred of 36,000 is 72. Very good. 72. Calculated. So Andrew says the Torah is correct. The Hamorim, and when it comes to Hamorim, so we said it was 61,000. So half of 61,000. Shiloshim Elif Bahamish Me'ot. 30,500. And one 500th of 30,500. Let's get it on the calculator. One 500th of 30,500. What do you got? 61. 61 is correct. By the way, laugh all you want, but every word that we're reading is a mitzvah de oraita. This is what Hashem wrote this. So therefore, everybody's saying, what are we doing over here? This is a this is Hashem's word. This is no no less valuable than the Ten Commandments we're reading it tonight about that. If it's in the Torah, if any if any of these letters is missing in a separate Torah, the separate Torah is pasul. 
So for whatever reason, Hashem wants us to go through this calculation. These numbers that we're reading are cleansing our souls. Venefish Adam. So we said, how many captives did they take? Ladies. Shnaim Ushloshim Aleph. 16,000. No, Shnaim Ushloshim Aleph is 32,000. So 32,000. Half, half of 32,000 is 16. Shisha Asar, 1,500th of 16. 32. Exactly. Shanaim Ushloshim is 32. And then, what did he do with the 500th? By Yitin Mosheh, Mechis Turumat Tashim, Ezra Kukka Shivashim Mosheh. Fine. Now, Ube Machasit Bene Israel. Now, from the half that Bene Israel got. Now, what did we say? The Torah said they got to give 150th to the Levim. Now, this is a big question. Maybe we'll deal with it on Shabbat or a different time. Here, the Torah is not going to give you the breakdown. It's just going to say, give the 150th to the Levim. And we're not going to go through the math now and say, well, half is this, and 150th of that is this. For some reason, when it came to the one calculation, the Torah had all the ink in the world to go through every single itemize and give us the item. When it comes to the 150th, look at the next pasuk. The pasuk says, Half of the son was the same number. 337,500. What was the half? Same half. Uh, is 36,000. And Hamorim, 30,500. Now, it's not going to give you the breakdown of, of, of the 50. It's just going to say, He took from that half, the percentage, what is it? Go figure it out yourself. Torah is not going to bother with telling you that calculation. And uh, they come along to Moshe Rabbeinu and they're going to tell him that they executed. They come along and said that there was no, no casualties, that nobody, nobody uh, uh, was missing. Which, by the way, the Mepharshim bring out over here that the Torah is telling us that nobody died during this, uh, during this whole situation of the, uh, uh, of the division. Everybody got exact half. Otherwise, it wouldn't be perfectly half. So it was, the, the, the division was, was done amongst the people and amongst the soldiers, and nobody died in the interim. And the Torah then tells us uh, to do this division. Who knows how long it took? It's, uh, Rabbi, even, Rabbi, even the captives had to give a... Yes. A yeah. But the captives... No, no, no. The, no. the captives are part of the spoils. Ah, okay. I understood wrong. Yeah, they're, they're, whatever, the 23,000, uh, whatever, human spoils. Oh. And now the Torah comes and tells us some of the items that they got. If you're interested in some of these items. Uh, so a lot of gold. It's Ada. It's Ada is Simidim Shel Begel. That's uh, ankle bracelets. Samid is bangles. Agil is earrings. earrings. Kumaz. I'm not going to explain you what Kumaz is. You could go. You could go. That's for the uh, for the 18 and above, above uh, item. Kumaz is a type of ring that you put in a, nose rings. No, was a nose ring. Yeah, it's it's it's, 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 it's low. 
Put it that oh, way. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. No problem. Anyway, the kumaz. Lechaper al nafshotechem lefnei Hashem. And uh, they brought all these uh, items to Hashem. Vayikach Moshe ve'el'azar ha'kohen et ha'zahab mitam. He took the gold. Kokli ma'aseh. And it says, Vahi kol zahab ha'terumah. All the zahab that they took was shisha asar elef. He gives it a number. Shvamot v'hamishim shekel me'atzer alafim me'atzer ha'meot. And uh, it says, "May Kach Moshe Rosh Hashanah the Zahab he took gold, may Yaviu told when words they come they sent up Nashim they gave it to uh, the Kohanim." So that's basically uh, very very technical but calculated uh, spoil division amongst the people, the warriors, the Kohanim, the Devim. So basically, you have to remember is two math calculations: split one five hundredth from the soldiers and one fiftieth from the people. Five hundredth goes to the Elazar. And it tells what, what what they did with it. They took the gold and all that, and that was a kapara uh, for the um, for what they did in the uh, avon of Benot uh, Midian. Anyway, these classes are for the fuash lema chaya sarah batzimcha. Hashem yishlach rafuash lema. God willing, next week take out your devarim. Got a new book. We got one more book to go. Uh, we say hazak hazak, but it's hazak to all our members. Chodesh tovu mevorach. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.